Leaders of the wealthy G7 nations gathered in Germany this week for a summit focused on isolating Russia from the world economy. The summit discussed attempts to impose a price cap on Russian oil exports and a prohibition on trading Russian gold. But is this sanctions regime backfiring on the West? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable but an imperative necessity. We're very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out that and all of his work at rdwolf.com. So, Professor Wolf, the G7 leaders, heads of state gathered uh, in Bavaria in Germany. Sanctions on Russia was clearly at the top of the agenda There's two sort of concrete things coming out of it, maybe more if you want to identify additional ones. But just to start us off, the G7 leaders agreed to ban trading in Russian gold. And the G7 leaders were also discussing something that's being picked up a lot in the the corporate media and discussed in the corporate media too, this idea of imposing a price cap on Russian oil that's sold on the global market. Can you just explain what these things mean and what possible economic impact they could have? Yes. Before I do, let me tell you my basic take on all of this so it'll become clear as we go through the particulars. The sanctions program is a failure. It's not working. It hasn't accomplished any of the goals it set out to do. And literally, uh, I follow the financial press very closely. Every day, there's one more knowledgeable commentator who's basically saying that. I was struck yesterday when the Financial Times, literally one of the most conservative organs of big finance in the world, basically said that. They said that these sanctions are a failure, don't work, haven't had the achievement of the goals they set out, etc., So as to the G7, this is the latest in many meetings where more sanctions are announced. No one ever admits that the reason you're having more meetings with more sanctions is that the earlier meetings with the earlier sanctions didn't work, hence necessitating more of them, and they won't work either. Out of these meetings came the two items you mentioned. The proposal, and remember, these are mostly proposals. They will go through a variety of government agencies. They will be whittled down. They will be modified. There's a long distance between whatever happens, if it does, and these meetings that are in the full glare of cameras and publicity and are meant to be symbolic 
whether they become real later or not is always an open question. The first one has to do with banning the imports of oil. I believe initially four or five countries, Britain, the United States, I don't remember, Switzerland, maybe one or two others, Japan, talking about banning the import of gold. Russia is one of the major producers of gold. That is, Russia has gold mines that are still full of gold, and they bring a lot of gold up, and they refine it, and they process it, and they have sold a lot of it to companies that do this to the Russian government. It's probably the biggest buyer and owner of it, but they also export a significant amount of gold. It's not a major item in world trade, but it's significant to a variety of countries. So having four or five of those countries that used to buy some gold from Russia, I believe Britain is probably the largest one of them, they're not going to do it now. It's a wonderful example. It means virtually nothing. I mean, it's a wonderful opportunity for Secretary of State Blinken to get out there and talk about the sanctions that are weakening Russia. And here's one more body blow. But literally, anyone who knows anything about this market knows that it's not a big deal. We're not talking about large sums of money. The money we are talking about is tiny relative to the exports Russia has of uh, oil, of gas, of fertilizer, refined oil, and so on. Uh, so this is theater. Political theater has little impact. The second item, putting a cap on the price of oil. Well, there is already, in a sense, a cap. The Europeans have to pay whatever the Russians charge because that's a way of the Russians counter-sanctioning them, restricting the supply, driving up the price, and then cashing in as the exporter at these higher prices. But to show you how little it means, in order to unload the oil and gas that they are increasingly unable to ship to the West, particularly the oil, the Russians have very successfully found alternative buyers. The most impressive alternative buyer is the country of India. China is now buying more and more. Other countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America are buying Russian oil. And one of the reasons they're doing it is that Russia is giving them big discounts. That is, Russia is selling its oil at a price markedly below the global price, markedly below what Americans and Europeans are paying. And so these countries are grateful to have access to discounted oil at a time when oil prices are at record historic highs. So the Russians seem to have no difficulty. They certainly haven't had any till this moment selling all the oil they need to at wonderful prices. Even the discounted price that they sell now is more than what the price was a few months ago because of the increase everywhere else in the world. And so the bottom line is, as I said at the beginning, that these sanctions are not working. They haven't worked. I mean, if I were in a harsher mood, I would start making fun 
of the West. I mean, the polling numbers for Mr. Putin are very high. His people seem to think he's doing a, a ducky good job in their view. I don't know how this is all handled inside Russia. I can imagine, but I don't know. Here in the West, where we talk all the time about the sanctions weakening Russia, all I can tell you is every major indicator of the well-being and the health of the European and American economies points to the toilet. It's terrible. We are, we are in an inflation we can't handle, confronting a recession coming down the pike as the way of trying to deal with it. Uh, these are terrible situations. The Michigan University confidence uh, indicator based on consumer polling is at an all-time low and has been for a while. So if the sanctions were made to weaken Russia and strengthen the West, they've literally had, at least to this point, the opposite effect, requiring Mr. Blinken and others like him to begin to use the future tense in verbs. In other words, Russia, we hear more and more, will be weakened. It will, in the long run, do all this damage. Yeah, well, it was originally presented as something that would bring the war to a quick end with the defeat of Russia. It was called the mother of all sanctions program. And I remember saying on this program, what I will now hopefully not offend anyone by repeating, Mr. Trump unloaded one of the biggest sanction programs ever seen onto the People's Republic of China during his presidency. A trade war, a tariff war, really heavy duty whacks at the Chinese economy. There is no evidence that any objective that I'm aware of was achieved by these sanctions. Sanctions have traditionally been relatively easy to get around, relatively easy to avoid, pass off the burden, and the Russians are proving themselves just as adept at doing that as the Chinese were, as the Iranians have been, as the Venezuelans have been, and so on. I find all of this to be mostly theater for the public photo ops and not a very serious process. And therefore, the tragedy, the horror of what is happening on the ground in the Ukraine, the obvious suffering and destruction of people and property and, and so forth, all of that continues and these sanctions have very little to do with it. Yeah, thanks, Professor Wolf. I mean, I, I agree with your analysis there. Just one last thing on this oil price cap scheme. I mean, essentially, what the G7 leaders are, are doing, it, it seems to me, is is assuming that the rest of the world will go along with this scheme, right? So they're they're essentially saying, let's form what economists might call a buyer's cartel, where all of the countries get together and collectively agree, okay, we're only going to pay a certain amount for Russian oil, and it'll be very, very low, therefore starving Russia of revenue. I don't think that the other countries are going to go along with that, right? I mean, like you were saying, a lot of other major economies in Asia, Africa, Latin America have stepped up their trade with Russia since yep. the Ukraine war began. I mean, do they have sort of delusions of an earlier period where they could just sort of dictate exactly what every other country does with their economy. Sure looks like it. I mean, nobody 
that I'm aware of, nobody I read takes this stuff seriously anymore. I mean, you can't, it's the old story that we were told as children, the little boy who cries wolf one time too many because he cries wolf when there isn't a wolf. When finally the wolf comes and he yells again, there's a wolf, everybody passes it off as, oh, that little boy who does that. You can't keep doing this in the world affairs. You can't keep making these grandiose threats that piddle down into nothing. Part of the reason the Russians were not dissuaded from whatever it is they were thinking of doing in the Ukraine was that the threat of the West, that it would respond with sanctions, given what happened in China, you know, was a case study that we're not going to be thwarted in what we want to do by a threat that we now believe is empty. And, you know, the bottom line is most of the leaders of the rest of the world, Asia, Africa, Latin America, but many of the leaders in the European countries, whatever they think about Russia versus Ukraine and all of that, their first priority is not something far away in a place called Ukraine. Their first priority is their own situation in their own country. And this notion, well, we're only going to do that. Well, if the Russians respond, if you don't pay us more than a certain amount, we're not going to give you the oil and gas, and we're going to take the following counter steps. And by the way, whatever you think of the Russians, when they announce that they're going to do some counter steps, they do them. And pretty much they have the effect that they say they're going to have. They're very careful. They may have learned the lesson of the United States to not do that because it makes you an empty, if I may be allowed the remark, a paper tiger rather than a real one. So I don't think, yeah, I don't think this is going to make very much difference. I think the leaders in all these other countries need cheap energy desperately. I mean, look at the the country we used to call Ceylon, Sri Lanka. They are now requiring people to turn off the lights in their country. The Japanese have asked their citizens to stop using energy the way they had gotten used to. These are politicians that are going to suffer because these conditions that are being imposed on their people, they will be held accountable. And they don't want to lose their political positions, lose their elections and all the rest of it. And so they're going to respond to that long before they join some maybe successful long-term effort of the United States. And we are no longer as a nation rich enough and big enough to compensate every other country in the world for the losses we ask them to absorb to join a policy which for them is a low priority. So, yeah, I agree with you. This is very unlikely to do what they claim its purpose is. So beyond just not working, failing to achieve the stated goal of these sanctions, which is to essentially bring the Russian economy to its knees. I mean, let's talk about the possibility that the effect is actually the opposite, that in the long run, I mean, to borrow Blinken's phrase, I guess, in the long run, actually, it's the United States and its allies, the major Western capitalist countries that are that are going to end up suffering more damage. I mean, we're talking about the international situation. So let's let's just stick with that before we go on to the U.S. specific situation. I mean, since at least the beginning of the 1990s, having a globalized free market 
has been a central priority, the central priority, really, of U.S. economic policy on the world stage. They want all of the countries in the world to remove their trade barriers that they have in place to protect national industries. They want them to cut protections for workers' rights and safety. They want them to cut environmental regulations, other health and safety regulations, and essentially create this one integrated capitalist global market that's, of course, run by the big banks on Wall Street and their allies around the world, you know, in, in London and in Paris and in Frankfurt. And essentially, this was their vision for the world in the 21st century. By imposing these types of sanctions, and, and maybe, you know, the most dramatic have been on Russia because Russia is such a major world economy, but there are so many countries around the world that are under one form of U.S. economic warfare or the other, some form of sanctions, that really are they inadvertently in the long run undercutting, destroying even this globalized world market that they've said they've wanted to build for so long. Absolutely. And they are doing that. And it's now common knowledge. I mean, let me assure you, there have been more articles and books written in the last three years, even before COVID hit. But there have been more articles and books that come across my desk that are talking about the end of neoliberalism, the end of globalization, the end of fill in the blank, whatever language or phraseology they choose, there is a wide and rapidly spreading notion that the period roughly from the end of World War II to roughly the crash of 2008 and nine, that will be looked back on as a period, a golden age of growth the explosive emergence of the domination of the United States after World War II, reaching its peak in the 70s and 80s with the collapse of the one conceivable military political competitor, namely the USSR, and then this sort of universal dominance of the United States. And what historians are already talking about is how fast it all reversed how suddenly this global image you just summarized perfectly well looks completely out of reach, feels as though it's some ancient story of a long distant past. And I think the illusions of what the United States was capable of, the refusal to recognize for a long time that they're going to have a really new powerful competitor this is something that even now is still not speakable in the United States. So let me speak it to make sure everybody gets it. I want to give you, and I've done it before, but I'm going to do it again because the number doesn't stick in people's minds. And I suspect that's because what it implies is difficult to face. In economics, that's what I do for a living. In economics, we use a statistic. GDP stands for gross domestic product. It's a rough measure of how big, how strong an economy is. It literally measures the total output of goods and services in a year in a country. And you compare one country to another using the most recent year, and then you get a sense of what the relative size and global impact of an economy is. So let me take Russia, China, and the United States so that you really have a sense of what the relative size and power 
of these countries is. Russia, most recent year that we have, one and a half trillion dollars. That's the value of their economy. That's the total output of goods and services, one and a half trillion. What's the United States for the most recent year? Answer, 21 trillion, okay? There is no comparison. Russia never was and is not now a competitor of the United States economically because it is too small relative to the United States to play any such a role. You have to understand that. Otherwise, you might actually take seriously the BS that comes out of a a political situation that the president of this country, Republican or Democrat, has to position himself very high up on a horse that's saving us from the Russian competition. We don't have that. Russia has nuclear weapons. That's important. Russia plays a political role in the world. That's also important. But economically, no, that's silly. Now, China. China's GDP is about 15 trillion. That's a real competitor. Not as big as the United States. Granted, we're 21, they're 15. But A, China is way more important economically than Russia and has been for decades. And number two, it's a real competitor. It can compete with the United States low-tech, medium-tech, and the highest tech there is, they do it all in China. That's not true in Russia. Couldn't be. They're too small. So you have to keep this in mind. The United States is the biggest, but its relative dominance has been shrinking for 40 years. It is less of a factor in the world economy than it has been probably in the lifetime of most of the people listening to this program. And that has to be factored in because everybody else in the world understands this and factors it in. The United States cannot do what it used to do. But you know, the typical situation of a society like ours, whose best economic situation is now well behind it, that is on the downside of the history of its empire, not the upswing, the downside. Nothing is more typical of that kind of moment in the history of empires than the word we use for the term refusing to believe or denial. The United States is a country in deep denial of what is happening to it, which I understand. It's typical, as I said, very hard to face it. You want to think, as every president says when he runs for office, the best times are ahead of us. They're not. They haven't been for a long time. And saying so doesn't change the situation. What you're watching is a spectacle. Mr. Clinton couldn't stop the process. Mr. Obama couldn't stop the process. Mr. Bush couldn't. Mr. Trump can't. And Mr. Biden can't. So each of them makes promises they cannot deliver on. For example, every one of them said, you know, we're going to bring back manufacturing to the United States. It's been on a straight line down across every one of their presidencies. And yet every time they insist they're going to do what 
everyone who pays attention knows isn't going to happen. But it's something that Americans need to tell themselves. And that brings us back to these sanctions. You know, you're not going to use nuclear weapons because that would be insane over the issue of Ukraine, whatever you think about the goods and bads and the rights and wrongs there. No one, including Ukrainians, wants to use nuclear weapons. Once you don't use nuclear weapons, because that would be crazy, you're not left with much. And the Americans understood that to their credit. And so what we have is sanctions and sending vast amounts of equipment to the Ukraine, which the Russians destroy. And we sit here with this absurdity, trying hard to make sense of something that is mostly about the denial of a society to come to terms. And lest anyone hear me say that this is inevitable or necessary, I don't believe that for a minute. The United States was once a small, unimportant colony of Britain. Eventually, the United States fought a violent revolutionary war, 1774, 5, and 6, against the British and fought to a a victory. The British were thrown out. George III, King of England, was defeated, and we became an independent country. The British didn't like it, didn't accept it. In 1812, they started again, another war to control, to repress, maybe to convert the U.S. back into a colony, who knows. And they were defeated again. And at that point, the British finally got it. Took them 40 years to figure all this out, which is not a compliment to them. But you know what they did? They then came to terms with the United States and the rest of the 19th and 20th century. These countries were allies, and uh, the British continued to decline. The United States replaced them, but they didn't have wars with each other. That's a hint. You know, maybe we ought to think like that about Russia and China. Last point. We are driving Russia and China closer and closer together. We are driving the two of them into a bigger and closer alliance with India, the second biggest country by population in the world, with South Africa, a very important country in that continent, and much else. Meanwhile, Europe is more divided internally than ever before, and that's true of the United States as well. We may be surprised in the years ahead that the countries falling apart in the world will not be the Russia that American policy hoped to see fall apart as it weakened. But the irony will be that the falling apart will happen in Europe and in North America in a way none of us are prepared for, and yet increasingly the splitting and the division, including this week's Supreme Court decisions, are actually having the effect, the opposite of what so many pundits thought was coming as little as six months ago. Yeah, I agreed with you, Professor Wolf. I mean, this is truly a, a remarkable period of transition in the world uh, and inside of the United States. We're all out of time. We're going to have to leave it there. We were joined by Professor Richard Wolf. He is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books, the latest being the sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself. 
You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We bring you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.